All right, Romans 15, starting in verse 14, reading through verse 21. Paul writes, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points, as reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me, in word and deed, to make the Gentiles obedient, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But, as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Okay. So looking here, as we saw last week, uh, Paul finishes really the main body of his letter in verse 13 of chapter 15. He is done with his application of the gospel. He, is, he has explained the gospel. He has explained it in great detail. And now he has finished his sort of how to live the gospel out in verse 13. But in that passage there, in verses 7 through 13, which we looked at last week, Paul just gives one more exhortation, one more word to how living uh, in a way that exhibits this mindset of Christ. He really wants to impress this idea upon the Roman Christians there to live this mindset of Christ out and to do so by welcoming one another into the church as Christ has welcomed us, taking all of these disparate groups of people that have come into the church, in this case Jew and Gentile, and try to welcome one another, try to be a body, a unified body. So in order to do that, you have to not let the little things, don't sweat the small stuff as it has been said. Don't major on the minors. So don't let these small, insignificant differences tear apart the work that Christ is doing in His church to build up the church and to build up the members of the church. So don't try to pick at little insignificant things that are not central to the gospel. So again, majoring on the things that are major, the the gospel truths, the, the person and work of Christ, what it means to be a Christian, not whether you eat meat or whether you celebrate a certain day or whether you dress a certain way. So don't let these things that are not central to the gospel and holy living ruin the fellowship of the body. And then Paul concludes the passage by highlighting Jesus Christ as the hope of not only just the Jewish people, but also the Gentiles. And we saw that Jesus was a servant of the circumcision. We see that in verse um, 8, I believe, verse 8. He is a servant to the circumcision. That word servant is diakonos, which is a, you know, someone who serves. It is often used to describe someone who is like a waiter, a table server. He, ser- he, he came as a servant to the Jewish people, as the promised Messiah, as the one long awaited to come. 
but he also came to save the Gentiles. And then Paul, then in rapid-fire succession, quotes from four different sections of the Old Testament, from each major section, the Law, the Writings, and the Prophets, to show how the Gentiles were called into the people of God. And then he ends this section with a prayer and a benediction that you see in verse 13, where he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this God of hope, Paul prays, then will let you abound in hope. And that hope, as we saw, is not the way the world hopes, but the way that the Christians hope in the sense that you are trusting in the promises of God, that if God said it, it is going to come to pass. So then as we head now into our passage this morning, verses 14 through 21, having finished that main part of his letter to the church in Rome, Paul now is going to turn to some sort of final matters, closing matters. He's just he's going to say some last words, he's going to give some travel plans, and he's going to give you some greetings at the end of the letter. In fact, almost all of chapter 16 is one long sort of Here's a list of people who, whom to greet, and here's a list of people who greet you. It's one of the, I think it, is, it might, in fact, be the longest greeting section at the end of any of Paul's letters, where he, he has this whole list of people. And I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking about a bunch of people that have no other reference in the Scriptures other than what you see here in Romans 16. So look out for that lesson. That'll be a fun one. Um, But what we're going to see here in these verses, 14 through 21, it really bookends quite nicely with something we saw all the way way back in the beginning in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 1. Because Paul is going to remind this group of people here that he is indeed an apostle of Jesus Christ. That he was one who was sent to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That he was set apart for this ministry. Specifically set apart for this ministry. In fact... Um, I think the men, we were looking at Acts yesterday, uh, but the previous section, we looked at the Paul's conversion. We see how Paul was set apart to be a, an apostle to the Gentiles. This was his specific goal. Christ said, I have called him, and I will have to show him how much he will have to suffer for my name as he's going to go out and be a minister for the gospel. And how the content of Paul's gospel was Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of God. So that's what his message is. In Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, he says, I resolve to do nothing but to preach Christ and him crucified. That is Paul's main goal, is to set forth this message. So as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see um, basically four things. Uh, Paul is going to express his confidence in the Roman Christians in verse 14. He's going to talk about his specific ministry call to be the apostle to the Gentiles in verses 15 and 16. And then he's going to go in verses 17 through 19 how the central focus of his ministry is to be Christ. And then finally, Paul will give us his goal or his ambitions in preaching the gospel in verses 20 through 21. All right, well, first here, let's look now in verse 14 at Paul's confidence concerning the Romans. So I've been doing a little count, and your handout might have the number at the bottom. This is the 53rd lesson in Romans. Okay, so I've been at this over a year. Now, that's 
that's lightweight compared to the way some people treat Romans. Like some people go through Romans in five years or 10 years. So be thankful that you're only going in this a little over a year, okay? Um, but it just goes to show you how much depth you could, you could take this if you really wanted to, you know, and pour over every single word. But this is the 53rd lesson in Romans, and we've been going through some very deep theology, some very deep and heady stuff. Uh, you see it as we, you know, just again, as you survey what we've looked at so far in Romans, you see the depths of our depravity in Romans 1 through 3, just how wicked mankind is and how God judges them by letting them go, by letting them run the course of their wickedness, by removing his hand. God gave them over to their wickedness. Uh, you see the heights of our gracious salvation in Romans 3 through 5 as God who, uh, you know, it, all men have sinned, but by the grace of God, he sends Jesus Christ to be that atoning sacrifice, that propitiation for our sins, the one who comes and bears the wrath of God so that God can be both just because he has judged our sin on Christ and the justifier of those who believe in him. So he can then make us righteous, declare us righteous because of what he has done to his son, Jesus Christ. Then you see the need for our sanctification, that justification isn't the end goal of our salvation. You're justified, but that's just the beginning of your walk in faith, right? Now the Holy Spirit comes in you. In Romans 6 and 7, the Holy Spirit comes in you and you see the need for sanctification. The idea that just because you've been saved by grace doesn't mean you can continue to sin as you like. So Paul then talks about your need to be a slave of righteousness, your need to walk according to the Lord, to walk in newness of life. And then he tells us in Romans 8 how the Holy Spirit helps us in that. How the Holy Spirit then brings us along. How he puts to death the deeds of the body and helps us to walk as Christ would walk. And how he also assures us of our future glorification. And then in verses or chapters 9-11, through 11, we see this mystery concerning Israel here. How if, if God then saves through justification, if no one is separated from the love of God, what about Israel? Because we see many Jews have not believed, and he goes through that there. And then all the ramifications of gospel living in Romans 12 through 15. So then it's almost like when you get to verse 14 of chapter 15, Paul begins this passage. It's like he wants his readers and his listeners to sort of take a deep breath, sit back, okay, relax a little bit. And Paul says, look, I'm confident in you. I am confident. I am confident concerning you, my brethren. Just relax. That you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. And that word there, confidence, really is he is persuaded. That's really what the word means there. He is persuaded concerning the, uh, the Roman church. Now, why is he persuaded? Because Paul's never been there. You know, and as far as we know, he hasn't met many of the Roman Christians. He may have met one or two along his travels, but he's never been there. So how does he know that they're full of goodness? How does he know that they're, that they're able to admonish and fill with all knowledge? Well, the only connection Paul had with the Roman church were probably, and we don't really know this for sure, the relatively few people he may have met, which then maybe fed his desire to go to Rome and minister there. Yet, despite this, Paul is confident about the goodness of the Roman believers and their level of knowledge and their ability to admonish one another. Now that word there, goodness, where he says you are full of goodness, 
Um, that word means uprightness of heart, kindness. Uh, this is one of the fruit of the Spirit that you see in Galatians 5.22, right? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul was also... So, and so then the fact that they are full of goodness indicates that the Holy Spirit is indeed working in them, bringing that fruit out in their lives. And he was also confident that they were full of knowledge. Now, you'd almost have to think that they'd have to be full of knowledge, right? Just based on the way Paul writes this letter. I mean, this letter has, has, fill, you know, has taken a lot of time of a lot of scholars and commentators. How many books are written on the book of Romans? That might be one of the most commented, commented books in the whole Bible is the book of Romans. How many pages have been written? How much ink has been spilt? writing about this book, massive volumes. And here, you know, so these people must have been, had some kind of knowledge in order to understand everything Paul has said to them. And he had given them both barrels of gospel truth for 15 chapters. He just unloads on them. He doesn't hold back. It's like, you're going to get the fire hose here, you know, you know, full blast. You know, you're going to have to be able to take that. And he was confident that they would grasp the depth of his teaching in this letter. And then also then being full of goodness and being filled with all knowledge then leads the Roman believers then to be able to admonish one another. And that word admonish basically means to warn or to exhort. Um, that's one of the things that the Word of God is able to equip you of when you see in 2 Timothy 3.16. The Word of God is breathed out. It's inspired so that it's able to have you do a bunch of things including admonish one another. So the Roman brethren, Paul was convinced, he was persuaded, were well equipped to exhort and warn one another to godly living. They knew the truth and they had one another's best interests at heart. So they were full of knowledge, full of goodness, in order then to exhort one another in that truth. Now Paul could write to these brothers this way because as we saw back, if you remember all the way back in Romans 1.8, we read of, in part that the faith of the Roman church was spoken of throughout the whole world. That's what he, in his greeting, he says, your faith is well known. Your faith has been spoken of. So that is why Paul is persuaded. He is convinced that they are full of goodness and full of knowledge. Because their faith has been known. It has been spoken of by other people. Now, in verses 15 through 16, Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, it is because of this world renowned faith in their goodness and knowledge that Paul then could write to them as he says in verse 15, I have written to you, brethren, more boldly. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace of God given to me. Now, when Paul says he has written more boldly, he is not kidding. Again, I remember I said he had given them both barrels of gospel truth. This is a very deep letter. He has written very boldly. It is a beefy, hefty letter. It is a theological tour de force. And there are portions in this, in this book where he has written actually quite boldly to them. Considering he doesn't really know these people personally. That's it. That's another thing, too, when you consider that. You know, if you consider some of the other letters like Galatians or Corinthians where he is, he is really kind of laying into the church for doing something wrong, he speaks very boldly to them. But then those are churches that Paul started. 
He started the churches in Galatia. He started the church in Corinth. And when they were going off the rails, he starts to lay into them. But he's never, again, he's never met these group of people. He's never met these Christians, yet he's bold with them as well. But Romans, being a detailed exposition of the gospel, it's okay to be bold, right? Even in sections of application, Paul was somewhat forceful, right? You have to be a living sacrifice. That is a bold statement, right? You have to live a life as a living sacrifice to God because of the mercies of God. Or when he tells them, you need to be in submission to all the governing authorities. Now remember, he is writing to a church in Rome at the time that Nero is the emperor of Rome. And he's telling them, you need to be in subjection to that government, to those governing authorities. And then consider just all the exhortations we've seen in the last two chapters of 14 and 15. These exhortations to the weaker and stronger brother. Very bold statements that he has made to these Christians. Now, again, Paul didn't know these people, so why was he so bold to them? Why was he so bold with them? Well, I think it goes to show that when it comes to gospel, to the gospel and to gospel living, you can't soft sell it. You can't soft pedal the gospel. We see this very often in our churches today, right? The seeker-sensitive movement or other movements that try to make church look friendly. They try to make the gospel more friendly. They only talk more about God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, and they don't really talk so much about sin and God's wrath and God's judgment and His justice and His holiness. So you kind of sell this, you know, it's almost like a bait and switch, right? Where you kind of give them this, here's, here's the carrot, and then you hide the stick, and you may not even show the stick, right? So you soft sell it. You're not bold. And then that just, what does, what does that do when, you, when you're like that? It creates a church of weak or false you know, believers who don't know the full weight of the truth. So you can't soft sell the gospel. So Paul's boldness here is more a product of the subject matter of which he is speaking rather than Paul's personality here. He's not being bold to them because Paul is a bit of a Uh, you know, alpha male jerk or anything like that. He's being bold with them because he is writing about the gospel. And he wants to give them everything about the gospel. You are dead in your sins. You are, you know, under the wrath of God unless you are, you know, saved and covered by the blood of Christ. So he's very bold with them. But then he goes on to say this boldness is because of the grace given to me by God. Again, like I said, this, this book ends quite nicely, what we see at the beginning of the book of Romans. Paul mentions in Romans 1, verse 5, that through Christ, we, including himself and those who uh, were with him, have received grace and apostleship for the obedience to the faith. So Paul himself was called out of a life of helpless legalism, hopeless legalism, into the special service of Christ in the church. And this was an act of pure grace. And Paul didn't want to take that grace for granted. He had a calling and he was not going to hold back. He was going to be bold with them if he had to be. And that calling that he received, this calling of grace given to him by God, was to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, as we see in verse 6. That I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, there's some really interesting choices of words in this verse here. Because when you read this verse, you may not notice it at first, but if you look at it more closely, there's a lot of priestly, temple, sacrifice language here. He is a minister of Christ, ministering the gospel so that the Gentiles might be an acceptable offering to God. Now, here Paul uses the word minister. Uh, it's the word leitorgos, which is, speaks of a priestly work, a priestly service, someone working in a priestly function. It's not the word that we see of Christ in verse 8 where he says um, that he had become a servant uh, to the circumcision. Here, Paul is using this word as a, re- a religious priestly type of word. And then that, there's a related word there, that word ministering, which basically means a priestly service. So he is a priestly servant performing a priestly service, and then he likens his service of the gospel to the Gentiles as a priestly service in which he himself is a servant offering up the Gentiles as an acceptable sacrifice to God. So this is very religious language that he's using here to show that his calling is a very specific calling for a very specific service that is to make you know, to bring people to the uh, to bring the gospel of people so they will then be living sacrifices themselves unto God. Now all of this priestly work is sanctified by the Holy Spirit, as we see at the end there, so that they may be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. All of our religious service, whether preaching, teaching, serving, leading, etc., is a spiritual service. And that means that it's energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit takes our mundane activity and turns it into a hallowed work which is acceptable to God. Now in verses 17 through 19, Paul will boast about Christ Jesus. And as we noted earlier, Paul sees his priestly service before God as a gracious bestowal by God. And as, be, as because of that, as such, then Paul then only wants to boast in Christ Jesus in verse 17. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. So Paul doesn't boast or glory in himself. He doesn't say, look at all the churches I've built. Look at all the converts I've won. Look at all the work I've done. You know, I'm, I'm great. <laughs> That's not how Paul operates. He's like, I boast in Christ Jesus. This is a gracious service given to me. I've been called into a holy religious service. And it is because of that that I glory and boast in Christ Jesus. That word there, glory, really is the word to boast. You remember that, phrase, that verse from uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, right? If you're going to boast in anything, boast in this, that you know the Lord. So Paul doesn't boast or glory in himself. In fact, if it were left to Paul, well, how many people think here that, that if, if Paul had any decision in the matter, where would Paul be right about now? Right, he'd be, and what else would he be doing? What was he zealous for in, in Philippians 3? Persecuting the church, right? If it were up to Paul, he'd still be out there persecuting the church because he was a legalistic Pharisee, right? Paul was, 
the word call almost makes it sound like, you know, polite. You know, Paul, would you like to serve? And No, he was like, he was literally dragged off of his horse, knocked on his backside, and told, this is what you're going to do. And, and Paul's like, this is what I'm going to do then. <laughs> you know, I mean, far be it for me to oppose the Lord, right? It's kind of, reminds me of Fred, what we were saying yesterday, <laughs> when God uh, unveils the, 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 the blanket with all the animals and says, take Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, God forbid I do what you tell me to do. <laughs> it's like, uh, Peter, Peter, Peter. I like Peter because Peter tells me that there's hope for people like me. Because okay? Peter, Peter was often sticking his foot in his mouth. Peter was often doing boneheaded things. I, I think if you were probably to measure the thickness of Peter's skull, it would be pretty thick, maybe a couple inches of bone matter there before you start hitting brain, but that's okay. Peter's great. I, like I said, he gives me hope because um, sometimes I feel pretty boneheaded myself. No, Paul was called into service. Um, Acts chapter 9, verse 6. So he, trembling with astonishment, this is Paul trembling, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? which is the proper response when God blinds you and knocks you on your backside off of your donkey. Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And then later on in Acts chapter 9 and verses 15 and 16, this is now Aeneas uh, being spoken to by Jesus, the Spirit of Christ. The Lord said to him, that is to Aeneas, Go. In other words, he was told to go meet Paul. And he's like, are you sure that Paul, you know, the guy who's persecuting us, the guy who's killing us? Like, yeah, go to that one. Kind of like Peter, right? <laughs> Don't question me. Go. Go to Aeneas and, and, and go, go to see Paul. Why? Because he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So therefore, as Paul says, he has no other recourse than to glory in Christ Jesus. In fact, if you remember 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And the reason he says, Cursed is me if I do not preach is because Christ told him, You will do this. It's like, okay, I guess I'm going to do that. Now this is particularly applicable, this idea of glorying in Christ Jesus for our service, to those called to vocational ministry like myself. I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus only, not in anything I do. It's not my wit. It's not my wisdom. I mean, God uses these gifts that he has given me to do this, but the glory goes to him, not to me. It's also applicable to other ordained offices in the church, elders and deacons. You were called into the service and therefore, you have reason to glory in Christ Jesus only. Because you have been gifted by the Spirit to serve the church in this way. And it goes for anybody in the church. You have been graced by God. You have been graced by the Holy Spirit to do whatever it is you do in the church, in your families, in the community. Glory and boast in Christ Jesus only. So because then in verse 17, Paul is specific that his boasting is in Christ Jesus only, because in the things which pertain to God. There in verse 17, where he says, Therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. 
Now that phrase there, in the things which pertain to God, is also used, in the exact structure in the Greek is used in Hebrews 2.17, where we see there, therefore in all things He, Christ, had to be made like His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And again in Hebrews 5.1, speaking again of Christ who is a better high priest, the author talks about all the other earthly high priests. He says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So that phrase there, things pertaining to God, is being used in the book of Hebrews to describe, again, priestly service. The priestly service of Christ and the priestly service of the earthly high priest, the sons of Aaron, those who were called to serve in the things pertaining to God. So both those verses in Hebrew use that phrase in reference to the priesthood, and that is in the service of God, doing those things that pertain to that service, which is why Paul was using priestly language earlier in the, in the, in the chapter here. So Paul knows and recognizes that what he does in the service of God is no reason to boast in himself, but in God who called him to that service and works in and through him by the Spirit. Now Paul continues to speak about his ministry in verses 18 and 19. Paul says, For I will, dare, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So Paul here does not want to waste the Romans' time speaking about himself or about his own accomplishments. That's not what he's here about. He's like, I only want to talk about those things which Christ has worked in and through me by word and by deed. And moreover, Paul says he wouldn't presume to speak of what Christ has done or not done in and through others. I only talk about what God has done through me. I'm not concerned about what God is doing in and through somebody else so much as I am about what God is doing in and through me. That's the things I want to speak about because that's what I know what God is doing. And since Paul was appointed by Christ as an apostle to the Gentiles, his goal then was to make Gentiles obedient. That's the end of verse 18. To make the Gentiles obedient. That is what Paul wants to talk about. How Christ has accomplished those things by making the Gentiles obedient. This is again what is spoken of in Romans 1 verse 5. The obedience of faith. So as Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was done here in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. And we, you know, if you read through the book of Acts, you see that Paul did perform many miracles. He, uh, he healed people. He brought people back from the dead. Um, people were so enamored by his great and mighty works that God was working through them that they said, just let his shadow, <laughs> you know, I want to stand here because when Paul walks by, his shadow will touch me and maybe that will heal me of my illnesses. In fact, Paul often reported of the mighty works that the Holy Spirit did through him in reaching the Gentiles. In Acts 15, which is the Jerusalem Council, 
Um, or as Presbyterians like to say, it's the first general assembly of the church because all the church was gathered together to hear this issue about Gentiles coming in to be part of the Jewish people or to be Christians, really, whether or not they had to be circumcised and follow the dietary laws. And in Acts 15.12, we read, Then all the multitude kept silent. So the entire gathering of the church here in Jerusalem kept silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas are talking about all the things God did through them in ministering to the Gentile people. And then later on in Acts 21, when uh, Paul is now before the court in Jerusalem and he's telling, what, he's telling the governors what he has done, he says when he had greeted them, he told in detail all those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So these mighty signs and wonders not only won over many Gentiles, but confirmed that Paul was indeed commissioned by Christ to be his priestly servant. And then so mightily that Christ did Christ work in and through Paul that Paul can say that without any boasting whatsoever, he says, from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel. And we, you know, if you looked at your map when I showed you earlier, that's a big region. Now, it looks like about that big on your map, but you know, whatever the scale is, you're talk, you know, talking the fact that he moved by foot. He didn't have monorails. He didn't have airplanes or buses or cars. He had to go on horseback or on foot. So that's a lot of territory to cover. Paul's ministry was vast. And when we were looking at the, when we started the study in the book of Acts, I mentioned, if you consider the fact that at the very beginning of the book of Acts, you have a group of 120 Christians, right? It starts off with 120 people in an upper room somewhere in Galilee. And then by the end of the book, this, this church, which was 120 people huddled in a room in Galilee, is now across the entire Roman Empire. Churches in almost every major city in the Roman Empire and a, a vast spread of the gospel, many thousands of Gentiles, many thousands of Jewish people brought to faith in a span of about 30 years. Church growth that is amazing. All the work of the Holy Spirit. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was working in and through Paul and in and through the other apostles to make this vast spread of the church in the Roman Empire during that period of time. So now finally here we see in verses 20 and 21 Paul's aim in preaching. In verse 20, And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. And again, that phrase there, made it my aim, translates one Greek word which basically means to be fond of or to love honor or to be ambitious. Okay, now this is not ambition. You know, whenever you hear the word ambition, you almost think of it in, in evil connotations, right? Ambitious people are those who are you know, plotting to take over power somewhere or to do something. This is a good ambition. Paul was ambitious. His aim, this was, this was what he wanted to do, was to preach the gospel not where Christ was named. In other words, Paul wanted to be on the vanguard. He wanted to be on the front lines taking the gospel to where it had never been heard before. He wanted to go to as of yet unreached territory. 
In Matthew's Gospel, a very famous passage, our Lord tells His disciples in Matthew 9, verses 37 and 38, Then He said to His disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. So there is much work to be done. Jesus says so. The harvest is there. It's plentiful. It's ready. We just need workers. We need laborers. That's why Paul didn't want to build on another man's foundation. He wanted to go where there was no harvesting yet. He wanted to go there and labor there where no foundation had been laid. Now, it's not wrong to so-called build or labor where a foundation has already been laid. I mean, if you lay a foundation, what's the implication after that? You, build, you put a building on it, right? You don't just, okay, I've laid the foundation, now go off to another plot of land, break ground, and lay another foundation. Then you've got all, these, you know, all this dug-up ground and all these foundations, but no structure. So it's not wrong to build on the foundation. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So some plant, some lay foundations, some water, some build on that foundation. Paul was a planter. Paul was a foundation layer. Paul wanted to go where the gospel had never been preached, and then he would trust others to come behind him and then build on that work that he has done. So in other words, to use the example that Jesus uses in the parable of the sower, he wanted to be that one scattering seed everywhere. He wanted to go forth and scatter the seed. And then quoting from Isaiah 52.15, Paul gives us a kind of theme verse for his own ministry. In Romans 15, 21. I just realized those are the same numbers, right? 50, 52. No, oh, one number off. Anyway, Romans 15, 21. But as it is written, this is Isaiah 52, 15. To whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. That's Paul's ministry in a nutshell. Paul was talking about, Paul was all about taking Christ to the Gentiles. That was his mission. That was his calling. That was a task given to him specifically by the Holy Spirit, by Christ himself. It's interesting, too. This is another something we looked at yesterday in our study of Acts, but it's kind of ironic in a way, kind of a delicious irony in the sense that, you know, here's a man a devout, who was a devout Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, right? <laughs> and here he is going to talk to Gentiles, going into the homes of Gentiles. This is... You know, he would never have done anything that would have rendered him unclean. Yet Paul was specifically chosen to go do that, to take that and, and visit with Gentiles as a chosen vessel to take the gospel to them. And as we've seen from Jerusalem to Illyricum, the gospel has gone forth. And we know that Jesus promised to build his church and that he chooses those who will labor in his harvest but Paul, as a human instrument, is responsible for so much that he has done. I mean, he is, you know, humanly speaking, the Apostle Paul is really, I mean, he's like the biggest, most important figure in the history of the church from a human vantage point. Because he's the one who basically spread the gospel throughout the entire Roman Empire. And it took root and eventually grew and, and bore much fruit. But this was all, as he would say, to the glory of God alone. Not for his own boasting, but all to the glory of God alone. 